Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon. I'm Charles Hall, the host of Top Docs Radio here on Business Radio X. I'm glad you're with us. The reason for uh, us being here today is to hopefully get the word out to our uh, patients in the community as well as our medical partners in the community to let them know about uh, a group of physicians uh, and expertise that they bring that will uh, elevate our level of health and our outcomes uh, for our patients. And um, in my day job, I work as a physician liaison for a, a wound care practice here in the Atlanta metro area called Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, as they said in the intro. And one of the things that I'm responsible for is elevating awareness uh, on a variety of issues. And um, I, that's why I'm very excited to have the opportunity to be here and uh, talk to these experts in their respective fields and highlight some information that will uh, hopefully uh, get some patients to a better place. Uh, joining me today are uh, three specialists from our, our community. We've got Dr. Shamir Bika of Foot and Ankle Centers of Georgia. I've got Dr. Andrew Puglisi of Infectious Disease Consultants of Georgia, and uh, Dr. Uthan Vivek of North Atlanta Vascular Clinic. And uh, what we're going to be talking today about is uh, kind of a roundtable discussion of diabetic foot ulcer patients. Um, and when we see these patients in our practice, uh, they're very often somewhat surprised and frustrated by the number of physicians that they have to see to uh, achieve uh, healing of that wound that they're dealing with. And, um, you know, that's one of the things we're hoping to get out there today is that uh, when a patient starts to have this kind of problem, it gives them an idea of what they can expect and then also have some information such that if they're not getting referred to you know, one of these specialists here, there's a very decent chance that they may need one of their uh, care and expertise to help them move on to healing. Because uh, if you look at the CDC information that they have out recently, there's 25.8 million people in the United States. Now, this is some a couple of years old, so obviously there's more people there uh, that are dealing with diabetes today, and that's about 8% of the population dealing with diabetes. And then we couple that with another 79 million people out there that are diagnosed as pre-diabetic, which means their A1C levels are a little elevated um, on a chronic basis. That's 35% of our population dealing with diabetes. So um, obviously with the risk that it brings for stroke, heart disease, peripheral vascular disease, um, propensity for infections when they have to have surgery, um, it's obviously a very big problem. And, and then when you combine that with one in six of those diabetics are going to develop an ulcer at some point in time, 85% um, of the amputations that develop uh, or come from uh, the diabetic population started with an ulcer of some kind. So it's obviously a huge problem, um, and we're looking to both work on prevention and then here elevate the uh, level of care that patients receive once they're dealing with this, hopefully that we can prevent that amputation from taking place because I, I don't think a lot of the patients out there that are dealing with diabetes and then ultimately an ulcer understand that the, the risk for mortality is pretty significant once you go to a major amputation where you're talking about uh, something below the knee or, or higher. So uh, if we can prevent uh, one of those patients from having a major amputation, um, then we've achieved our goal. And that's, you know, what we're hoping to do today. 
So what I'm going to try to do is just kind of give everybody a sense of what can they expect when they're dealing with the, our specialists here today and, and uh, get their perspectives on this challenging group of patients and this challenging uh, disease process. So I'll start with you, Dr. Bika. Tell me a little bit about your practice. You're a, you're a podiatrist here in the community. Yeah, so my name is Dr. Shamir Bika. I'm a foot and ankle surgeon with Ankle and Foot Centers of Georgia. Uh, my specialty is more on the trauma reconstructive side of uh, of any kind of deformity out there. Um, I also do treat uh, diabetic patients quite a bit. Um, part of my residency was with Georgetown's Diabetic Limb Salvage Center. Um, so we worked with quite a few other specialties, including plastic surgery, vascular surgery, infectious disease, as well as internal medicine, because uh, diabetic wound care isn't one of those things that one particular specialty can handle, but rather is more of a team approach. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> When you, when you look at your practice, not necessarily just, uh, you know, diabetic foot ulcers, but just in general, do you have an idea, just a, even a gut idea of how many of patients that come to you for care are diabetic, you know, as part of their comorbidity? I would say um, it can average anywhere from 30%, depending on which office you're at. Some of my offices that are more on the south side of the city um, definitely have a higher diabetic population. Mm -hmm. So over there, you know, we could be at almost 80 to 90% mm -hmm. of diabetic patients, while my offices further up north are a little bit more on the sports medicine and trauma side of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and, and bring in our other specialists just to kind of touch on the same same sorts of topics. Um, just moving around the table, Dr. Puglisi, um, you're you're coming to us from the infectious disease specialty. You know, yeah. tell me a little bit about your practice and same kind of thing. How many of those patients do you see as a diabetic? I've uh, been practicing infectious disease now for 18 years here in the metro Atlanta area. Uh, over that time period, our practice has really grown. Uh, currently, we have offices in at Crawford, what used to be known as Crawford Long, now Emory Midtown, uh, Tucker, Alpharetta, Johns Creek, Lawrenceville, Gainesville, and we're about to open an office in Athens. There are eight of us right now in currently in this practice. Um, I've been dealing now with diabetic foot ulcers for over 25 years. Uh, and it's nice to see in that time period how things have evolved where before, it was just amputation, cut, antibiotics. Uh, now, with the knowledge we have about vasculature, microvasculature, the adjunct of hyperbarics, better understanding of antibiotics, better understanding of how even the management of diabetes is so important, controlling those blood sugars. Uh, really, really has helped salvage a lot of limbs in the time period that I've seen. So I, I think this is a great opportunity for us to explain to not only the lay people but other healthcare professionals mm -hmm. out there to understand why this is such a pro, uh, an important approach to um, dealing with people with diabetic foot ulcers. Mm -hmm. The multidisciplinary approach, not only in this disease, but other diseases that I work with, uh, has been such, has given us such a better outcome for uh, patients with chronic diseases. And I really do believe that in the future, we're going to see medicine move towards more that disease state management right. 
uh, using a multidisciplinary approach instead of just the one physician trying to manage it all. Mm -hmm. And I agree with you. Mm And your point on the multi-specialty approach, you know, know, that was somewhat proven statistically. When you look at the Snyder-Sheehan study, for example, which was a a large study that was uh, published a few years ago that that was wanting to take a look at, is there something that predicts how, how, how likely is this wound to heal this diabetic foot ulcer? And and that, that article was, you know, uh, very clear that there are several elements to this wound that, that must be addressed, and that is what is the vascular status of this patient. We know that uh, diabetes damages the vascular system. We know that, uh, you know, hypoxia and impeded blood flow can certainly uh, diminish our ability to heal an infection uh, as well as provide nutrition to, uh, to get a uh, new tissue to grow in a wound. Um, infectious disease being one of those things that at some point they're going to need the high-powered uh, specific uh, combination of medications that you're going to get under the management of infectious disease. And then obviously when it comes to uh, dealing with that wound, there's, you know, rare is the case that they're not going to at, at least need some sort of minor surgical revision of that wound, if not major surgical revision to get them closed. So um, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that point. And that's one of the things that we're tri- trying to drive home to our uh, listeners in the community today is that it's rare that you're going to come to the office and, you know, many patients flow through primary care, for example, I was mowing the yard and I got this blister on my foot and it's not getting better and so they'll they'll begin to try to manage them for a period of time with some oral or topical antibiotics. Meanwhile, the clock is ticking and what we want our, our patients and, and those physicians out there who might be listening today to understand is that when you get that patient with a wound on their foot and they, are, they come to you with diabetes as a comorbidity, it's, it's kind of a major red flag that um, there probably is some vascular challenge on that patient It's uh, that's preventing to, that wound from healing and uh, we need to take a look at that and is it infected with something that's uh, significant that we need to get arrested before it gets into the bone um, so they also need the surgical specialty of uh, of our podiatrist um, to be able to get in, to get to manage that as quickly as possible because time really is the thing that we they showed that if it's not reduced by 50 percent in 30 days the chances of it healing in six months is under 10 percent versus start approaching 60% likelihood in that same period of time if you do get that quick reduction. So time is really of the essence, and that's the thing I think that gets lost a lot of the time. So, you know, with that, I'll, you know, talk to Dr. Uh, Vivek a little bit about his practice. You're our vascular specialist, and and, uh, tell us a little bit about your practice and then kind of uh, how how you approach that diabetic patient when they come to you. What's the first thing you want to know about, you know, uh, diagnostically, for example, when that patient comes to you? Uh, thanks, Charles. Uh, I'm uh, Yutan Vivek. I have been practicing uh, vascular surgery in uh, At- Atlanta metro area for more than eight years. Uh, I'm mainly focusing on peripheral disease as a uh, teamwork. Uh, I'm also trying to save anybody's feet and legs because uh, cutting the leg is uh, not anybody's fun, especially for the patient. So when they come to me, most of the time uh, they are either have an ulcer or the foot is numb. So basically, like my practice involves both preventive treatment and treatment when they have an ulcer and post-treatment as well. But I always uh, involve uh, teamwork, like do you have a foot doctor, my first question. Then if they have got an open infection, how long have you been on antibiotics? Who prescribed the antibiotics? Do you have an infectious disease doctor of your choice? Then uh, the reason they have come to me, it's obvious. They want to make sure the circulation is good. So we start with a duplex study in our office and ankle brachial index. 
then we will see whether any major vessel disease or small vessel disease. Especially these diabetic patients have small vessel disease, even if they have the circulation fantastic, down to the ankle, the foot circulation is not good. But uh, even if my duplex study comes normal, the ABA sometimes, because of calcified vessels, they may not be normal. It may be falsely elevated. Then we can go with a toe pressure measurement. Uh, that's where we stay. Like uh, Then if I have any doubts, if they have already tried antibiotic therapy and they have not tried hyperbaric oxygen, but they have not seen the foot doctor to avoid pressure and contact, all this kind of stuff, I involve the team. Mm. Then from my side, I want to make sure 100% before they leave out of my practice, they have a good circulation. Mm -hmm. So even if the ABA is normal, duplex study is normal, if the wound has not healed in six months, I give them the opportunity to go for an angiogram because there are some areas, iliac stenosis, we may miss it because these people don't walk. So the resting ankle brachial index may be normal. So that's where I start my practice and educate them. So what is diabetes? Then involve the, if they are not seeing an endocrinologist, I make sure they see an endocrinologist and their blood sugar level is normal and a supplemental multivitamins necessary and a diet, a good quality diet is necessary. So so the, the studies you're talking about, the duplex study um, and the ABI and toe, toe pressures, uh, th those are all non-invasive? All non-invasive. It's done in the office in the first consultation as well. If not, we'll bring them back and make sure it's all done. And the referring doctors and the doctors, the team involved, either infectious disease or the podiatrist doctor, they have enough details that they can continue their treatment because their circulation is good. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm curious, when you're doing your diagnostic studies on a diabetic patient who has an ulcer that they're dealing with, do you have kind of a, you know, just a rough estimate? How often do you find something there that's, uh, uh, you know, blocking their vascular flow significantly I, such that you would have to go in and do some sort of... I would say like 70 to 80 percent. Very rarely just a tall, sir. Uh, the last month I saw a guy, he's like 390 pounds weight. And he developed a foot ulcer, which he had a year ago. Basically, his foot is not tolerating the weight. And he has got small vessel disease. And he's so young. And the diabetes for 10 years. And when I did all the studies, everything came normal. So basically, I put him on intravenous antibiotic with infectious disease, sent him to the foot doctor, then hooking up with the hyperbaric center. And it took like three months, finally it healed. And I did not need to do any intervention. So it's very common for you to find yeah, uh, to something that needs an intervention of sure. some kind in the vascular system to help ensure that they have maximal flow available. And that's really a vital piece of information because, um, you know, if you're a patient and you're under the care of uh, whatever type of physician may be managing you for your diabetic ulcer, and they start talking to you about an amputation, whether it's minor or major, and you have not yet been to a doctor like Dr. Vivek where they've done some of those non-invasive studies or even an angiogram, like you say, which is, you know, a little bit more invasive, but certainly, uh, you know, ex more extensive in terms of its diagnostic power. But uh, if you're a patient and you're faced with this ulcer and we're starting to talk about amputation, whether it's the tip of your toe or half of your foot or half your leg, uh, you want to say, what, what about, do you think maybe I should get a vascular study? Um, that is, that's an important piece that cannot be overlooked. And in my opinion, personal opinion only, it's uh, the opinion of Charles Hall, but uh, I, I believe it's absolutely wrong for you to move to uh, an amputation without at least 
a non-invasive vascular study of some kind to assess whether there's some, some vascular disease there that we might be able to reverse and save the amputation, uh, obviously to the benefit of the patient. Uh, if you're just now joining us, I'm Charles Hall, the host of Top Docs Radio. We're talking to Dr. Shamir Bika, Dr. Andrew Brickleese, and Dr. Yuthan Vivek about uh, diabetic foot ulcer patients and the multi-specialty team approach that's required to get those patients healed. Um, you know, we, Dr. Dr. Vivek talked a little bit about kind of what you can expect when you when you get into his care. He's going to do some non-invasive studies. If you find something to go a little bit more aggressive, um, who, who typically is sending you a, a patient to you? I mean, are they coming to you out of self-referral, or is there kind of a pattern that you see in terms of the Charles, typical uh, referral? Well, mostly primary care physicians. Uh, they are the one like uh, when they have an ulcer, they send. But a few patients find them find us online. Mm -hmm. And uh, otherwise, like infectious disease, when they have an ulcer, they are also referred by primary care who did not think there is a vascular issues. After the infectious disease exam, oh, they are not happy with the way the foot looks or they could not feel the pulse. They do send it to me mm -hmm. and the podiatrist always. So when they go to the podiatrist, oh, I have a foot ulcer, somebody sent them uh, patient to the podiatrist first. Then when they are not happy with the circulation, they want to make sure before they continue with the treatment, mm -hmm. the circulation is good enough. Mm -hmm. So by doing non-invasive studies, getting the reassurance, circulation is good. All the other specialists involved in the care, comfortable in managing the patients on their own once the non-invasive studies are done. Do you see a kind of a, a ballpark of how long has someone been dealing with a vascular or, or with a diabetic ulcer patient before they come to you for a vascular study? Do you have kind of a rough estimate? Usually two to three months. Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably a little too long. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would say in general for at least my practice alone, whenever I do encounter a diabetic ulceration, in general, every single diabetic ulcer patient goes to a vascular specialist, mm -hmm. no matter what. And the reason why is that you don't want to be surprised and find out two to three months later that there wasn't blood flow and you wasted two to three months um, where you could have essentially healed it. Um, also, prior to either doing any kind of debridement or cutting and making an amputation, I want to make sure that that <laughs> amputation site would heal with right. adequate blood flow. Um, so. For me, vascular specialist is sort of like my right hand. It's yeah. no matter what, each patient ends up getting us a, a evaluation. And if the evaluation is you know positive, that's great because at least I have a little bit more of a reassurance that the amputation or that the debridement would heal. Um, you know, it's very easy to do an amputation, but the problem is to actually let it heal. And then two, doing a, an amputation of let's say even a a first or a hallux or the fifth digit that leads to a cascade of new pressures to other sites and that sort of it starts the the gamut of further amputation and it's more of that creeping thing that within the next few years this person will lose half their foot or end up with a below knee amputation so it's one of those things at least from the foot and ankle surgeon side we obviously want to save the foot and ankle because that we know that will lead to a um, higher mortality rate yeah, and, and I'm not I'm not surprised to hear you say that, given that you know I've had the chance to you know speak with you in the past. I actually met you at a, uh, at a, a presentation <laughs> yeah. on on uh, revascularizing the lower extremities. Um, but uh, you know, I've I've in, in the similar sorts of presentations, I've seen foot and ankle surgeons and and, and uh, doctors of different types, whether they're primary care or whatever their background may be, having questions. When should I send my patient to? Um, a vascular study, you know, and understand what their uh, state of vascular flow is. Um, you know, so a lot of people don't know. They don't necessarily understand that that's one of the probably 
first things that you should take a look at if we've got a wound that's not healing correctly. And, and for your practice, Dr. Puglisi, what's the typical flow for the patient? Do you think that you know most of them come through kind of particular channels? Or um, For the diabetic foot ulcers, I would say most of the times they usually come from the foot and ankle surgeons. Um, and that usually is due to whether or not there's bone involvement. Um, also, it also depends on what kind of microbes we're finding in the ulcer itself. Um, the rule of thumb that we always used to go by and still do is that if you have visible bone or you can probe bone, you have a bone infection. Um, then you get into the dilemma of what to treat and how to treat because um, in most instances, these diabetic foot ulcers are polymicrobial. Um, so there's a bunch of different There's a bunch of different in bugs there. in there. How they get there, uh, let me explain because I have to explain this to a, a number of patients because they're like, how did I get this here? And did the, was this from the hospital right. and all of that right. stuff? Well, um, you know, our skin is just a great barrier against bacterial infections. And once that integrity is disrupted, like in a uh, diabetic foot ulcer, that's when the problems begin. So most of these infections actually occur in the bathtub or in the shower, mm. when you're showering. Mm -hmm. And uh, not to get too gross or graphic, but when you're soaping up in between your, your rear end and down in the groin area and all that stuff, well, all of that bacteria now is running down your legs and into the soapy water in the shower or the bathtub, which if you're standing in it and you have this ulcer, you're inoculating that wound. So, and just having a dressing on there doesn't necessarily protect no, you from no, that. No, a dressing alone because what happens? The dressing it gets wet. Through, yes. And then you get out of the shower and you start doing everything else. And just think about all those millions of microbes that are just encroaching in that wound uh, at that time period. So uh, when, we, when it gets to this point, a lot of the decision-making that I have to do is how am I going to treat? What am I going to use? So, again, I'm looking to treat for organisms that are normally found in the digestive tract. Okay. Um, but again, if this is a recurrent problem, the patient has been hospitalized recently, then we have to start worrying about some resistant organisms and some other organisms. The two that are always notorious that we're watching for in diabetic foot ulcers are MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, which is a very big problem not only in diabetic foot ulcers but in general. And the other one is Pseudomonas. Mm -hmm. Now, Pseudomonas is found in our digestive tracts, but if you've had previous infectious experiences, you have to really um, put that into uh, uh, account because now you're starting to select out higher and higher concentrations of pseudomonas. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and again, if the bone is involved, oral antibiotics most likely will not work. So now we're going to commit that patient to at least six weeks of intravenous antibiotic therapy. Mm -hmm. And that uh, involves putting in what they call a pick line, right? Or pick line or, or some sort of, of a, a permanent or semi-permanent uh, vascular uh, mechanism so that we can spare the patients from getting IVs every three days. Uh, that gets really old. And again, if you're talking about a diabetic who has a vasculature that's not on a healthy side, once you can get uh, a permanent uh, access in there, it makes it a lot easier, not only for the patient, but for the uh, nursing staff 
and uh, to do this on a daily basis because, again, they're going to be receiving these medications on a daily basis, okay. minimally six weeks. Now, do they do that with home health, someone coming to their home, or do they have to come to, like, the infusion center uh, at the office? It all depends, uh, again, unfortunately, on insurances. Sometimes uh, we have to send them to an infusion center. Uh, other times their home health can get involved depending on how – uh, easily they can travel. Uh, in some instances, like we do with my office, we actually do the teaching and training and we monitor their IV antibiotic therapy uh, through the office. Um, whatever, Whichever way it works for the patient, whatever is the most convenient way for the patient, that is what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. um, and then we just monitor the progress again in conjunction with everybody. And um, uh, we, we see how they uh, improve. And, you know, of course, a lot of times we're using empiric therapy, but we depend on maybe intraoperative cultures to see if there's something we're missing. And then we can reach, we can, or... In, when you say empiric therapy, what do you mean? In other words, when we first see the patient and evaluate them, if we don't have a culture or if things look what I would consider a normal diabetic foot ulcer, okay, well, then I'm going to just treat on my best, quote-unquote, guess I gotcha. on what's going to cover Gotcha. But if I see I'm not making progress, then I'm saying to myself, well, maybe I'm missing something and I really need to have this reevaluated and I depend on the surgeons to get me some good cultures intraoperatively. Uh, to see so you, you might call up Dr. Bika, for example, and say, hey, we're yeah. dealing with this. Yeah. Uh, it's not really changing a whole lot. Um, do mm -hmm. you think you could go back and do some surgical yeah. debridement, maybe get us a good right. deep culture? Right. right. Yeah. And how many times is like, hey, I'm taking the patient back to OR next week, and I'm like, great. Get me some cultures. Okay. You know, let me make sure I'm not missing anything. Just out of curiosity, I mean, when you make that recommendation, do you do you ever get pushback? I really don't want to take them to surgery or, you know, not necessarily from Dr. Beaky here, but I mean, you know, in, in, in general. No, not in general. I mean, I think we're all on the same page. If we're seeing that the wound's not healing, then, then it's like, okay, then we have to rethink what we're doing. Mm -hmm. So we're, yeah, and to be and to add to that, I mean, in terms of debridements, it's, debridements are actually essential for trying to get this wound to heal. Um, you know, you can throw as many antibiotics and make sure there's blood flow, but there's always going to be a bile burden that needs to be removed, and that usually does require either a debridement in office because um, a lot of these patients are neuropathic where they can't feel much anyways, or it needs to have a little bit more of an aggressive debridement that is required in an operating setting. Um, the also nice part of being in the operating room is that you can get um, accurate cultures. My general practice is to get pre-cultures um, prior to even doing any kind of debridement. I usually will then get um, cultures of bone, um, either do both a gross pathology review of the bone as well as a culture of the, of the bone to see what's growing. Mm -hmm. And then we also will get uh, post um, irrigation or post lavage cultures to get um, just additional information on wanting to see if the microbial load has decreased whatsoever after our aggressive debridement and lavage. And we do cultures after every debridement, you know, before and after. Um, the reason why is that there's been quite a few things where we will think we're treating two organisms and a third organism pops up on the third debridement. Um, so it's one of those things that it's constantly evolving as well as the antibiotics need to be constantly um, evolving so that uh, we're giving that patient the best chance to heal something. Mm -hmm. So when you're, when you're looking at that, you know, you, you're obviously uh, um, 
thinking, you know, forward thinking and with regards to, you know, the multi-specialty approach. So you're already clued in. I'm going to mm -hmm. look at their vascular status. I'm going to look and see if there is an organism. You talked about BioBird, and that's the, the sticky stuff and right. the protective materials that the organisms, you know, kind of like plaque on teeth. That's a BioBurden if the patient's out there going, what the heck is a BioBurden? Um, but, you know, when it, whenever we, we find some organisms there, at what point, you know, from the infectious disease perspective, you know, obviously if we find something in the bone, that, that means we really probably need to break out the big guns. But, you know, best advice, if I've got a patient, a patient that has some organisms coming back, at what point should I, in, in your mind, ideally get my patient to you so that, uh, that you can begin giving them the most effective infectious management? Versus I, doing something like oral antibiotics or topicals or whatever you might do in the office. Uh, I, my point would be the sooner the better, okay? Uh, for the simple fact is that if we're treating earlier and aggressively, we may be able to spare the, the big guns. Uh, if it's a shallow ulcer before it starts getting deeper and starts festering more and more. Again, we're dealing with somebody here who can't feel that ulcer in most cases, so they have no pain. And this thing is just progressively worsening and worsening, um, where if they're seeing me sooner and we do find something that could be treated with an oral antibiotic because blood flow is still good, let's jump on it, let's be aggressive. Um, and then we could spare that progressing to a uh, bone infection. When someone you know comes to you, would you say the majority of the time they typically get to you? By the time they get to Dr. Baglisi, there's already some involvement in bone, or do you think that we're doing a good job community-wise in getting you that soft tissue infection? Um, I've had both. <laughs> okay. yeah. um, uh, I've had several where the foot and ankle surgeon was very concerned because this ulcer was not really responding to topicals and stuff like that, and we've been able to reverse it very quickly by using uh, an oral antibiotic that would pick up most of what we were finding there. Mm -hmm. So uh, we've had both, and then other times uh, you look at it and you know you're not going to get ahead of it without intravenous antibiotics. One other point I would like to make about intravenous antibiotics, sometimes even if it's a superficial ulcer and it hasn't gotten to bone yet, we may have to use intravenous antibiotics in these situations for the simple fact is, and again, depending on the patient's other comorbidities, they may not be able to absorb an adequate concentration of uh, the antibiotic through the GI tract. Um, I've seen this countless times. I've actually have done some studies in patients where they've been put on an antibiotic. I bring them in and do look at serum concentrations of the antibiotic and find that it's below therapeutic. Uh, there are many reasons for it. The diabetes itself can contribute to this. Older patients have this problem. Uh, people that may have underlying reflux and that are on uh, PPIs, uh, proton pump inhibitors, uh, may not, because they're decreasing the acid load in their stomach, well, they may not be able to dissolve that antibiotic enough to get adequate absorption into right. the system. So all of these things really do play into it. And again, you have to think the patient as a whole, what are you dealing with? If you have somebody, if I'm if they're referred to me by foot and ankle or vascular, and they're saying, hey, it's not a bad-looking ulcer. I put them on 
antibiotic X, it should be getting better, but it's not. But then I see the patient and I realize that their reflux is so bad and they're taking Nexium twice a day and maybe they have a little diabetic gastroparesis. In other words, things aren't really emptying in the stomach well. This is not going to be a candidate for oral antibiotics. Right. So, again, we may have to get a little bit more aggressive in that patient. Yeah, I think that what you're saying is key in that uh, with some topicals yeah. or oral antibiotics uh, and some good basic wound measures, yeah. I think it's pretty common for everybody in the room to, to, to say they've seen a patient who had been being managed and the wound looks pretty good, as, as everybody likes to say. It was really looking good. It, it, uh, it's just not shrinking. Yeah. And that's the thing that I think that gets missed is it doesn't just need to look good. It needs to be shrinking. Right. I yeah. think the biggest thing is that we don't take enough measurements. I mean, in general, my practice is to measure a wound every week and to be able to see at least a percentage improvement. And if you're not seeing a percentage improvement after two or three weeks, you need to change your approach. And I mean, I think that's one of the, the things that um, reason or one of the reasons why wounds go as long as they do is that we think they look great because they're nice and beefy red, despite the fact that they're staying the same size no matter what. Um, so it's one of those things that you do need to be able to measure and look to see if you're seeing improvement because at that point you can continue on with whatever course of treatment you're doing. Mm -hmm. You're listening to Top Docs Radio. I'm Charles Hall. I'm being visited by Dr. Andrew Puglisi, Dr. Uthan Vivek, and Dr. Bika here is talking to us about what patients can expect when they get to uh, him and his office. Typically, uh, primary care, I would say, is probably one of the main places where patients are coming to you from? In general, it would be primary care as well as their emergency room. A lot okay. of patients um, do not see a primary care doctor, and they will go on with a wound that's present for three to four weeks. There's two different population sets. There's the, the elderly who may be living on their own, cannot physically inspect their feet or the, the bottom of their foot, and they'll go for three or four weeks before someone else comes by and notices either a foul-smelling odor or they start noticing blood um, on the sock. Mm -hmm. um, then there's the population that does uh, routinely go to a primary care doctor, and at that point, those patients um, have a little bit of a better chance because they are being evaluated quite frequently and are able to be, you know, directed to the correct specialists. Um, and then, you know, we do get patients from the emergency room. Those are usually the ones that that initially lead to some sort of amputation because they're, they're coming in with a more aggressive um, bacterial infection, usually a gas-forming infection mm -hmm. um, that generally requires at least a emergency debridement. And then at that point, we're sort of behind eight ball. We're trying to find vascular to get um, a evaluation to see if you know, further debridement or further amputation is going to heal. We're trying to get infectious disease involved um, because these are polymicrobial organisms. And, you know, at the same time, they're very aggressive. So it's something that we need to usually treat with an IV antibiotic. Mm -hmm. So when I get to you, I'm a, I'm a patient and I walk into um, a podiatrist office or wheel in on a wheelchair, <laughs> um, you know, t take me through, you know, you, obviously we've talked about the fact that you as a podiatrist are going to involve someone like Dr. Vivek to assess their vascular status, but what else can I expect as a, you know, uh, experience when I'm trying to manage this in the podiatrist's office? Right. In general, when, um, all patients um, that have an ulceration get x-rays, and the reason why is that um, we want to be able to see bone involvement, um, not just for the infection side to see if there's an a, a 
osteomyelitis of the bone, but we also want to be able to evaluate for any kind of biomechanical abnormality, whether there's a bony prominence that's leading to the wound, and that's maybe the reason why the wound hasn't healed in the first place. Um, you know, so it's one of those things that we have to evaluate not just for bone infection, but we want to evaluate for the overall foot structure and see if this person's walking on this, is there a excessive pressure point? Is there a um, exostosis or a bony overgrowth that's leading to the, the wound? Um, we also do check for um, neuropathy. We will check for, in particular, protective sensations to see if a person has the ability to um, notice and recognize minute trauma, um, whether it's a little pebble in the shoe or whether they're able to notice that there is a temperature change. Um, you know, I've had patients who've actually walked barefoot on concrete or on um, the road and come in with second or third degree burns yeah. and never felt it. Yeah. Um, so it's one of those things that we have to also evaluate for the, the neuro side of things and make sure that they are having the sensations that that a person that doesn't have diabetes, for example, would have. So when you're saying neuropathy, that's talking about my feet are numb now, my nerves are damaged, right. and now and, I don't and, have sensation. And it's not essentially, or it's not always numbness. Sometimes they start off with burning sensations, then it'll go into these little electrical shocks or tingling sensations, and it's just the, the progression of the neuropathy as it goes to that numbness. I mean, if I were to stick them with a, a needle, I'm pretty sure they would feel it, but if I'm able to stick them with just a, a small little piece of plastic, they would notice that. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're more scared of is the fact that they can't notice the little piece of plastic. Mm -hmm. How important, uh, you know, from both the ongoing management and prevention of, a, of this from recurring, from allowing this one to heal, obviously you're going to have all kinds of big clunky boots and different things like that that uh, the patients wear to take the pressure off. But, um, you know, how, how important is that where they have good, you know, fitting shoes, for example, specifically designed for the diabetic right. and that kind of thing? Um, in, in terms of Patients, you know, we have the ulceration patients who obviously will automatically go into a diabetic shoe with a specific insert for them. Um, it may have an insert that's cut out for uh, for their wound, or it may have an insert cut out for a particular bony abnormality to try to prevent um, excessive pressure in that particular area. Mm -hmm. However, we also, you know, have patients in the the preventive side. Um, in general, any patient that has neuropathy or has any kind of bone abnormality, whether it's hammer toes or a bunion, um, well, we recommend diabetic shoes with specific inserts. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's quite a few patients who will wear either too large of a shoe um, or too short of a shoe. And the way I explain it to them is that when you're walking, we have the normal sliding of our foot going forward into a shoe. And if your shoe's too big, you're going to be jamming up front, or if it's too small, the same thing. Mm -hmm. And when we start noticing callus, that's a good indicator that something's wrong because mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't have callus. Um, callus just tells us that there's either a friction point or, or a, um, a bony pressure point that's leading to that you know, excessive growth of skin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there'll be quite a few times where as we're debris a callus, we find a ulcer sitting underneath it. Uh -huh. And, you know, patients will get, patients will blame you for it, saying <laughs> that right. you caused an ulcer or that, you know, well, it wasn't there when I first came in. Right. And it's, you know, our job, obviously, to explain to them that the ulcer was there. And if anything, the, the excessive skin overgrowth was causing that ulcer to continue to be there and possibly make it even worse because now you have something that's even firmer putting pressure on that. And some of these points that that uh, that our guests are, are bringing up today are, are, are 
all points that I'm very glad that you've mentioned and, and talked about. I, I, I know in our practice, in a way, in, in, in wound specialty, we end up kind of being like a primary care doctor because we're referring outbound to um, uh, physician specialists like yourselves uh, or one of you is, is, is sending a patient to us. And, and uh, we're frustrated sometimes by the fact that what patients don't understand, particularly when they have a high-risk um, disease process like diabetes in play that's going to lend themselves to, you know, greater likelihood of infection, greater likelihood of vascular disease that would impede their healing, that that there's a kind of a natural reaction, I think, sometimes for someone like you talked about, you, you uncover, you're doing good care on their foot to remove a callus and you, you discover that there's, in fact, a ulceration either present or forming under there. Mm -hmm. um, and, and someone wants to think, well, my so-and-so doctor did this to me, but in fact, um, they're uncovering the problem and making you aware of it now. And so I think that that's important for our community folks to understand is that, that uh, yes, there are times out there that uh, something goes awry, but uh, more often than not, particularly when you're dealing with these types of problems, that we anticipate uh, when we do surgery, the healing may not progress you know, as we would want. Um, and the key is to get to physicians like we have here today who are obviously uh, in line with uh, current literature that says pace, pace, pace. We need to, we need to be moving. And everybody I've, I've uh, been talking to today uh, has said something similar each time, and that is if, if, if it's not changing within a couple of weeks, we really need to be thinking about something different. We need to potentially be involving uh, one of our other multi-specialty partners here for an opinion to find out if there's another element that I can't manage myself. Uh, to help make this patient get forward because, uh, as we've talked about, you can make it look good, but if it's not shrinking, it's still a, a pathway to the bone and to serious infection that's really going to probably or, you know, very likely can cause me to lose my limb, and, and uh, obviously then I'm in grave risk at that point in time. So I'm, 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 I'm not surprised to, to hear you all uh, bring these up. There's a reason why I had you all here because I kind of know how you practice. We've had the opportunity to kind of work with you and talk with you to know. But uh, I felt like it would be very useful for our community to, to understand that when you're dealing with a diabetic foot ulcer that can cause you to lose your limb, there's things you need to be thinking about. One, I probably need more than one doctor working on it. Two, I got to be moving it along quickly, and and if it's not, we got to be asking, well, why isn't it? What else can we do? What are we doing different? Is it diet? Is it vascular? Is it infection? Is it a surgical need or offloading of pressure? So uh, I'm I'm very pleased to have had you all here to be able to, to illustrate that in no uncertain terms from your own perspectives because you all see it all the time and, and everyone here can tell stories about uh, I, I can't tell you how often I've had a patient I wish I had them two months ago or weeks ago um, so those are the points I'm hopeful that both our, our medical community and our patients listening today will, will come away with is that even a tiny ulcer um, that, that, uh, that doesn't look too bad if you're a diabetic you, you really need an expert to take a look at it and it's probably going to involve in, in most cases uh, more than one of them to get it better before I run out of time I, I wanted to uh, take a, a quick minute and go around and just kind of to, to close out our topic on uh, diabetic foot ulcers, just if there's, you know, if you have like a, from your own perspective, based on your 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 focus of expertise, uh, a, a key point or two that you would really like to drive home to a patient who's listening or to a provider who might run into these patients once in a while, you know, uh, Dr. Vivek, you know, give me your opinion. What are what are the top one or two things maybe that you would really want someone to be sure that they're aware of when they get confronted with a diabetic ulcer? Yeah, the main thing is like their foot is warm. And uh, they need to make sure that their circulation is good enough. 
then only it can be helpful for any other specialist to make sure the infection is treated and uh, the foot is taken care of very well, like uh, non-weight-bearing shoes and those kind of stuff, including uh, if they need to use a wheelchair or crutches until the ulcer heals. And uh, in addition, good diet and vitamin pills, those kind of stuff. Do you have kind of a, a baseline recommendation if a patient has been diabetic for a good period of time, um, you know, and they're over a certain age that, you know, and they present with an ulcer that we would recommend some vascular studies? I mean, do you kind of have a rough estimate of, you know, if this patient walks in your office and you're a primary care doctor, for example, I recommend a study ASAP of this type. Yeah. Uh, basically, like uh, we do arterial duplex and ABI, that is the recommendation. Right away. No, right don't away. wait. Yeah, that's what they come. They get it done same day. Okay. Yeah. And and how about you, Doctor Puglisi? What your best recommendations for you know uh, your patients? I have for two two recommendations. The first one is uh, strict diabetic control. Uh, we got to keep those sugars well controlled because it has a very big negative impact on the immune system. Once those uh, serum blood sugars get above 200, things like white blood cells become almost paralytic. So mm -hmm. they're, they're not going to help. And, now, and you just cannot rely on antibiotics alone. That's number one. Number two is delivery system. Um, how many times we see uh, a patient, the ulcer is not healing, the bacteria that we're finding are pretty much sensitive to the antibiotics we're using, yet it's not healing. We know that the macrovascular is good, the microvascular is good, so what's going on? And this is where I feel hyperbarics has a very important uh, point. Um, the bacteria are much smarter than we give them credit for. Right. And they create in that microenvironment a low oxygen level. And that has a negative impact on two different types of cells, the fibroblasts and the osteoclasts. Fibroblasts are very important in making collagen which is important to making new blood cell, uh, blood vessels. And if we don't have those blood vessels to deliver the antibiotics to the source of the infection, it's not getting there. Also, osteoclasts, uh, yes, they will still divide in low oxygen, but uh, they don't do one of their main jobs, which is to reabsorb dead bone. So if they're not reabsorbing that dead bone, well, guess what? The bacteria is gonna use that dead bone as a food source. So, so it's just going to grow. It's just going to grow and proliferate. And how many times we do see it? Oh, it looks good. Everything's great. The ulcer healed. Stop the antibiotics. Six months later, the patient's back in with the same exact ulcer. Why? Because the, that, that one or two little areas that didn't form new blood vessels, that still had some remaining dead blow, and the immune system wasn't able to get there, you know, it's like, the enemy going into a bunker. And then after the shelling, it comes back out. Yeah, so we, we've certainly seen that. And, and of course we and, have. And I'm glad to get that input. How about you, Dr. Bika? What would you say that a patient and a doctor needs to know? The very I think, important points. I think the important part from the foot and ankle surgeon side would be the preventive aspect of things. Um, you know, we generally recommend any diabetic patient, whether you're well controlled or poorly controlled, to be evaluated by a foot and ankle specialist. Um, you know, we have our well-controlled diabetics who are following to their to the best um, of their abilities, following all the protocols that we set forth. We evaluate them on an annual basis. However, 
you have the poorly controlled ones or the ones who are just at an increased risk of developing an ulceration who are evaluated every three months. So you're saying if I'm seeing calluses, I need to go and get them taken care of because my nail salon will, uh, will will take care of my calluses for me. Right. The problem with the, the – pro- <laughs> and and that's definitely true. They, they will take care of your callus for you. Um, the problem is though – For that, an extra $10. Exactly. Right. Um, the problem, however, is that it, if you're having callus, there is a reason why you're having it. Um, we in general are not supposed to have callus. Um, so if as, – especially as a diabetic patient, if you're having callus – um, that's a good indicator to us that you are having some sort of abnormal pressure that's leading to that callus. That was me being facetious to, uh, <laughs> to uh, give you the chance to say, no, please don't go to a nail salon to get your calluses and your nails trimmed well nails. if you're a diabetic. Um, and, and obviously, you know, that, that fits in with your – that's why everybody laughed whenever I said that because uh, I don't know how many patients get to us after getting a, a quick nicked by a, a set of poorly sterilized or non-sterilized uh, instruments or uh, over, over the aggressive uh, managing of a callus in a nail salon. So. Right. But yeah, I would, I would definitely say that the preventive side, our patients even on a day-to-day basis are asked to inspect their feet. Um, you know, there is that population – just based on their, their body size, they're unable to expect, inspect the bottom of their feet. We will have them p- um, put a mirror on the floor. They obviously need to know where that mirror is so they don't accidentally step on it. However, we'll have them you know, hover their foot over that mirror to be able to inspect the bottom of their foot. Mm-hmm. Um, we Even simple things as moisturizing your feet. Um, you know, most diabetics have dry feet, and it's secondary to neuropathy as well as the fact that they're just not able to sweat as efficiently as non-diabetic patients. And, you know, dry skin leads to fissures, which then leads to a breach in the skin that can lead to a large ulceration or a small ulceration. Either way, it it now allows a portal for an infection to spread. Um, so simple things like that even are important. Well, that uh, excellent information, and I think it's some some pieces of of knowledge that uh, a lot of people might overlook, uh, you know, on all these fronts. And before we go, um, you know, just take a quick minute, Dr. Beek, and then we'll work back around the room. Do you have other areas of focus in your office? Obviously, we clearly invited some experts on the diabetic foot ulcer patient, but I also know that uh, each of you brings some uh, focus of expertise in other areas that uh, people may or may not be aware that uh, that you provide. Right. And my primary focus is on trauma and uh, reconstructive foot and ankle surgery. So I do... Um, see quite a bit of traumatic fractures, um, open fractures or closed fractures, as well as um, I see uh, quite a few sports medicine um, injuries. Um, And then also I do have the diabetic limb salvage side where, you know, we're treating diabetic patients with uh, fractures or even with um, wounds. You know, diabetic population has to be treated in a different way, um, whether they are involved in a car accident with multiple bone fractures or if they just accidentally walked off a curve and, and sprained their ankle, they have to be treated in a different perspective. Mm-hmm. And then I also treat um, pediatric patients quite a bit. Oh, great. And so, you know, tell us how, you know, if I want to get some information about you, want to connect with you uh, and learn a little bit about your practice, tell us the different ways that we can find you. So we're also, we're on Facebook. We're also on Twitter and then our website, which is uh, Um, com. Uh, we have 21 offices throughout the city. Um, we, 
are both in the north and south portion of the city as well as right in downtown. Um, we have a group of 23 doctors, all are surgically trained um, so that we're able to treat both the medical and surgical side of the foot and ankle. Mm -hmm. So so if I go to your website, I can link up with you on uh, Facebook mm -hmm. and, the, and Twitter and those other right. places. Through our website, you'll have um, the Twitter site as well as the Facebook page um, links. And you can also even make appointments through the, the website itself. Um, and then we our goal is to be able to get patients in within a 24-hour period because obviously there is something wrong that needs to be addressed. And so you, as you said when we first started, in case folks came in late, your your office is located in Alpharetta. Right. My office in particular is located on Windward Parkway and Highway 9 in Alpharetta. <clears throat> okay. Dr. Puglisi, tell me. Um, I do a lot of work with the medical management of chronic sinusitis, which is a very big problem here in the southeast, especially the metro Atlanta area. Um, I work with several of the several otolaryngologists throughout the area. Uh, surgery is a very important part of chronic sinusitis. We need to have adequate drainage of the sinuses. However, there are risk factors that need to be evaluated that can contribute to recurrent chronic sinusitis. Uh, the ones I specialize in, in is allergic fungal sinusitis. Again, a very big problem here in the southeast because it's very humid. We really don't have a winter, even though this one was a little right, more yeah. severe than uh, normal. Uh, we are finding a lot of patients with underlying immunoglobulin deficiencies that put them at risk of having recurrent chronic sinusitis. We're addressing that. We're so what kind of symptoms will I be having if I've got, you know, a chronic sinusitis? Just kind of a con always got a stuffy nose? Or? Uh, it's more than just a stuffy nose. It's usually uh, maxillary pressure and pain. Oh, so I have, my face hurts. A lot of times Headaches. I get referrals from dentists because a patient will go to the dentist, say, I got a toothache, and they'll do an x-ray and say, no, your teeth are fine. It's your sinuses. Um Atmospheric pressure changes, right. you know, one of the most common s complaints I hear is, hey, I can tell when it's going to rain 10 hours before it does. <laughs> um, polyps, people are embarrassed. They'll say, I could actually see a polyp. You know, people are noticing polyps hanging out of my nose, right. post-nasal drip. Uh, this could be a con very huge contributor to asthma. We see a lot of asthmatics that have underlying sinusitis. Uh, people don't realize that reflux is another contributing factor to chronic sinusitis. So if you get the sinusitis resolved, whether it's a fungal or some other source, then yeah. you see some of these other problems go away with it. Absolutely. Or vice versa, take care of the underlying problems, and then everything falls into place, like your asthma. Uh, if you do have underlying reflux, treat the reflux. Guess what? Sinuses go, sinusitis goes away. Uh, so uh, that's where I, I do a lot of my work right now. So tell me, you know, if I'm a patient, I know, mm -hmm. again, you're, you're also on Facebook, Twitter, yeah. those types of sources. Tell us where to find you. Um, I, I'm, I'm in the process of getting everything organized with Facebook and Twitter. Uh, right now, I would say, is just to call my main office, which is 678-990-1383. Excellent. And I'll be able to get that information to you shortly about all of my Facebook and Twitter accounts. What's your? You have a website, right? Uh, we do have a website, but again, it's being revisited because we had to make some drastic changes. So, uh, so it won't be up at all, right? There, not right. This okay, that's okay. fine. That's yeah. fine. We'll we'll make sure that we update that because yes. I'll, as we close the show, I'll certainly mm -hmm. give out our contact information, sure. and we link with all of our guests so that people can, um, one way or another, get to you. Right. Um, you know, and last but not least, Dr. Vivek, uh, you know, tell us about any other special focus and expertise that you would 
would offer to the community. Right. Uh, I'm a board certified vascular surgeon, and my focus is uh, mainly uh, leg circulation and varicose veins. So we evaluate people for any peripheral artery disease when they walk into my office with the leg pain on walking or when the primary care doctor refers without any pulses, they can't feel when they complain of numbness of the feet. So I do like angiogram in the office in my vascular center, which was created six months ago. They have the benefits of getting the angiogram and angioplasty and atherectomy, the modern treatment with the state-of-the-art technology in our office itself. That saves time and money in the long run. And in addition, we take care of varicose veins. And uh, in elderly people with the uh, new regulations, uh, in fact, few years old, uh, medical recommending we get the screening for abdominal aortic aneurysm in uh, men ever smoked and aged more than 65 years of age. And we do screen for carotid stenosis as well. Uh, these are my interests. I do carotid surgery and aortic aneurysm surgery as well as stent graft and peripheral disease for leg circulation and varicose veins. I'm curious, you know, we talked about the importance of getting a vascular uh, diagnosis for, for flow to our lower extremities, but how often would you say that, uh, you know, when you do that study, you find a little disease in the legs that there's probably some either coronary disease or perhaps some carotid disease to, to go along with that? Right. Uh, in literature, it says like anywhere between 50 to 25 percent correlation with the peripheral artery disease and carotid artery disease. But coronary artery disease, I think it is 10 to 15 percent. Mm -hmm. And when we take the history, we come to know they already had the coronary stent placed or open heart surgery done. Uh, if not, if I pick them up, if they come for leg pain and numbness, now with the new regulation, as I mentioned, we need to screen them for carotid stenosis and have picked up like in a month, one or two carotid stenosis and the patient gets surprised. I came for the foot. Why did you look at my neck? When they come to know they've got 90% stenosis, they come back and tell me, you saved my life. I That's didn't right. want to sit in the wheelchair or on the bed. That's right. I'm happy for you. That's great. Same thing, aneurysm as well. When we screen and pick up, oh, you have 5 centimeter aneurysm, we need to fix it. They look at me differently than go for a CAT scan, when everything confirms, they're really surprised and they're really thankful for the medicine field, not just me. <laughs> and so, so uh, tell, the, tell the listeners where to find you on the, on the internet. Yeah, we have a website, uh, yennevascularclinic.com. Uh, in addition, my office number is 770-771-5260. We are located in Johns Creek uh, in the hospital parkway, just opposite Emory Johns Creek Hospital. Thank you very much. And once again, I want to say thank you very much to uh, all of our guests today. Um, they've invested some uh, time today and obviously had some very important information for both our patients that might be listening as well as the doctors. Uh, once again, I'm Charles Hall, uh, the host of Top Docs Radio, and I'm a physician liaison for Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia. You can find us on the line at www.hbo mdga.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook slash HBOMDGA and on Twitter at HBOMDGA. Uh, please follow us uh, uh, for the show. A link to us at Top Docs on BRX. Uh, hashtag Top Docs BRX. Once again, this is Charles Hall uh, with Top Docs Radio. I want to say thank you very much for joining us on our first show today. And uh, tune in next week. We're going to have Dr. Ellie Campbell from uh, Campbell Family Medicine and Dr. Kenneth Anderson, who will be able to talk about the new innovations in hair replacement. So join us next week, Thursday, same time. <laughs>